Namaste everyone. Today is our podcast on Bhagavad Gita, chapter 17. And uh, chapter 17 is about yoga and the three types of faith. Pandit Atul, namaste and welcome. Namaste and good morning. So can you tell us a little bit about what chapter 17 is all about in Bhagavad Gita? Well, chapter 17 of Bhagavad Gita covers the divisions of faith. And basically, it looks at all the things that are part of human life from the perspective of three gunas. Things such as our faith, giving in charity, and eating are some examples of things that are described there. So the three gunas, you mean the sattva, tamas, and rajas are mentioned here? Yes, that's correct. Sattva is the mode of goodness or purity. Rajas is the mode of passion, attachment, and activity. And tamas is the mode of ignorance, indolence, and uh, material growth. Right. So uh, in the verse 4 of uh, chapter 17 in Bhagavad Gita, uh, talks about people worshipping entities and angels and devas according to this Three gunas, can you speak a little bit about this verse, Yajante Satvika, this verse? Yes. So in the verse beginning with Yajante Satvika, it is describing the different things that people do. So, for example, there are those who worship um, the supreme person and who worship angels, and they are after... Um, benefits such as they want to have blessings, they want to have auspiciousness in their lives. And this is considered worship that is in the mode of goodness. It is sattvic. And then there are worship of um, asuras, the, um, those who are, uh, they may worship other men uh, and women, or they may worship um, asuras. This is in the mode of passion. Um, this, we can translate this to the context of modern society, for example, people who are fans and who literally worship sometimes, uh, you know, a rock star or some other person. They may not even be after some benefit, but this is definitely rajasic and it is a type of worship. And then in Tamogun, there are those who worship ghosts and other spirits and dark entities. This is sort of like in voodoo. Um, or and people other... who do Wicca or magic, sometimes they dark, not them. No, Wicca is actually more goddess worship, and okay. Wicca is very Shakti-oriented, and actually a lot of people that I've known who practice Wicca have a more sattvic outlook yeah. on life. Okay. Really, in India, worship always involves both Shakti and Shaktiman, and Wicca is really kind of emphasizing the Shakti aspect of worship, um, and, you know, uh, because of the uh, patriarchal attitude of the medieval church, um, the, the feminine aspect of the divine was really kind of cut out of things. And so practitioners of Wicca and pagan religions were really persecuted. Yeah, no, I wanted to ask this question because, uh, you know, I talk about goddess worship also. And I've met a lot of beautiful uh, Wicca worshippers who are very positive and they, 
worship nature and Mother Earth and uh, seasons. And uh, people who don't understand them are the ones who say, oh my God, that's so pretty. So we wanted to clear that up. So uh, this particular verse also talks about, uh, you know, the word it uses is yaksha, that people who worship yaksha and rakshasaha. What does yaksha mean? Can you explain that? Yakshas and rakshasas are, um, they are powerful races of beings. They are different. Um, Yakshas tend to have more technological proficiency, whereas rakshasas are shapeshifters. And they have very specific powers. They naturally have powers. They have abilities such as being able to um, convince people of, of things and, and change their minds and influence. So that is a very common thing amongst yaksha and rakshas. Yaksha and rakshas uh, also can mix among human society. Because they can change shape. They can make their appearance pretty much whatever they like. And, you know, it, it takes, it is very difficult to tell, especially nowadays. Yep. Okay. So uh, let's move on to, so we've established uh, people who are naturally in the sattva, the mode of goodness, are attracted to angels and devas. Then mode of passion which is the rajas are attracted to these yakshas or beings with power and um, or powerful humans or powerful humans and in the in tamas or uh, mode of ignorance are attracted may be attracted to sometimes the pretatmas or the bhutas which is means ghosts and uh, dark spirits dark magic and, and dark spirits. Yeah. yes um, one other thing i want to add in terms of the whole wicca witchcraft association is that you know there have been people who do dark rituals usually doing unclean type of things such as you know offering body fluids body parts yeah. and other kind of disgusting practices um, that are meant to attract dark entities. For example, in some uh, scriptures, there's reference to human sacrifice. Ouch. And there are no devatas who will accept even animal sacrifice. Yeah. Um, I've heard stories of, you know, uh, the in, in Hinduism as well, in our stories in India growing up, oh, you know, they were doing some like cutting up a goat or something and giving a sacrifice to Kali or Durga and uh, how is, I would always wonder, how is Kali or Durga who are a goddess accepted? So they don't accept it then, right? Absolutely not. No, Kali, uh, Durga Mata never will accept any such thing. She is the Shakti of Bhagavan Vishnu. She is the external energy and her job as the superintendent or the the mistress of the dungeon of this material world is um, it's a difficult one but although she has a ferocious aspect she is also devoted to Bhagavan Vishnu and she would not consume any such thing but she has associates who are Dakinis or um, dark witches and others who follow her and who get benefit by following her and sometimes doing her dirty work and they will accept these kind of blood sacrifices Ew, yeah she does not accept them but it is also said that if you must eat meat then you take a goat and on a dark moon night 
you whisper into the ear of a goat a mantra that says, as I take your life, so you shall become human and take my life, meaning I will become a goat, you will become a human, we are having an exchange, and then you can cut the goat's throat and hear it screaming and have the blood spattering and know that you are taking a life and you are suffering and you will have to become a goat in exchange. And this is actually meant to discourage people from eating red meat because, you know, we go in the grocery store and we see all this neatly packaged meat and we think, oh, what will I choose for dinner? But really, there's the product of violence here. There's also, you know, we've been in our college uh, before in San Diego College of Ayurveda, now in Narayana. We've been teaching uh, about, you know, focus on vegetarian, vegan diet. And uh, a lot of people argue, what about if I like it? So doesn't this chapter also talk about, you know, people in uh, sattva or mode of purity and goodness are naturally attacked? attracted to vegetarian diet and uh, those in the mode of passion are attracted to what kind of diet? Well, in the mode of passion, people will be more attracted to eating, um, eating meat and other things. They will like to have spicy food. Now, there are different perspectives that are given in this chapter. For example, it is said that sattvic persons will like things that are wholesome and pure and clean um, and, and rajasic persons will like things that are very passionate in nature and tamasic persons will like things that are, um, that are you know, tasteless, uh, decomposing, stale, rotten, etc. Um, but there are different ways to also look at this, and there's the karmic perspective as well as the sense of what someone influenced predominantly by a particular guna is attracted to. I just want to make it clear to anybody who's listening, this is not stuff we are making up. We are talking from chapter 17 of Bhagavad Gita, which is spoken by Sri Krishna, who is one of the primary deities, the supreme person in Hindu religion. So verse 7 talks about Aharastvapi sarvasya trividho bhavati priyaha yagyasta pastatha danam tesham bhedamimam shrinu So herein, he's talking about ahara. And ahara is the, the food or the diet and trividho, three types, right? And then it's talking about three types of uh, charity, three types of yagya, three types of food types. Can you explain a little bit about that? Well, this is just the introduction. Sri Krishna is telling Arjun, okay, we're going to talk about how there are three types in everything. We're going to talk about three types in sacrifice, three types in charity, three types in food consumed, and three types in austerities. Right. And then the next verse is what you just talked about that, um, you know, people who are in sattva are naturally attracted to uh, sattvic uh, food like the, this one. Ayuhu sattva balarogya. What is it? Ayuhu sattva balarogya. Sukha priti vivardhana. Rasya snigdha stirahridya ahara sattvika priyaha. So 
these are the types of foods that are very dear to those who are sattvic in nature. Those things which are nourishing, juicy, sweet. Um, they may also be somewhat fattening. Um, these are actually sattvic things. And these are all vegetarian, plant-based foods that they're naturally attracted to. Yes, it is. It is. It is lacto-vegetarian things mm -hmm. like ghee, milk, vegetables, um, fruits. fruits. Yes. Then the verse nine. Uh, so in in Ayurveda, there's six kind of rasas. It's interestingly mentioned in the verse nine. Some of these rasas: katu, amla, lavana, ushna, tichna, ruksha. So. Katva Amal Lavana, Lavana Tushna Tikshna Ruksha Vidahinaha, and it causes. Katva Amla Lavana Tushna Tikshna Ruksha Vidahinaha, Ahara Rajasasyeshta Dukkha Shokamaya Pradaha. So, can we explain that, please? So, these are the things that persons who are predominantly influenced by Rajogun are attracted to. Those things which are, and the key word here is Ati. Yeah. Uh, excessive so because we are we should actually have six rasas in our taste but those who are attracted to things that are excessively hot excessively sour excessively salty um, that give a burning sensation this is rajasik yeah so I'm reading this uh, Bhagavad Gita by Sri Srimad Bhaktivedanta Narayan Goswami Maharaj and uh, he mentions that uh, this is actually what's mentioned in Ayurveda that if you have excessive uh, the bitter excessive sour salty pungent then you can get a burning sensation in the tongue throat and belly and uh, wind and indigestion follow which is interesting because uh, vayu and agni are actually imbalanced when we have excessive these tastes all right now let's talk about what is what does it mean to have pure food which is fresh so when we say fresh food, we just assume it's been in the fridge for five days or six days. It's still fresh. However, according to uh, Bhagavad Gita, there is a different uh, uh, definition of fresh food. What exactly is fresh food? So in verse 10, Sri Krishna defines those things which are tamasapriya or attractive to those who are in the mode of tamogun. Yata yamam gatarasam puti paryushitam chayat. So yatayama means something that after it has cooked, at least one yama has passed, meaning about uh, two to three hours. So ideally, we should have food that is cooked fresh, and we should have food that is freshly harvested and freshly cooked, and we should not have things that have been um, sterilized and packaged for a long shelf life um, or frozen and then microwaved. That actually is going to be have more of a tamasic quality. Now obviously if I cook something, if I cook some nice fresh vegetable and let it sit out, um, it's quite possible that there's going to be some bacterial growth and it's going to, um, I can possibly get food poisoning. And that's a big deal for, you know, if you have any kind of a business that serves food, of course, especially if you have, um, you know, meat and fish and other things, they will, 
they will go faster into that state. But yatagamam is very important because it really says that ideally the best thing to do to put into our bodies is cook fresh and eat fresh. Get so, hyper-local, uh, get something from a mm -hmm. garden or locally grown, get it, immediately cook it, eat it. Uh, interestingly, when I was growing up and I was really little in India, we didn't have any fridge. The fridge came later. And when we didn't have any fridge, food would come. It would be uh, cut, uh, it would be prepared, it would be offered to uh, God, we would eat it. And whatever was left over was given to uh, cows and dogs and um, leftovers were given to poor people. So there were no leftovers in the fridge. Mm -hmm. uh, the invention of fridge has, um, and also there is no, there is no, uh, you know, tinned food or, um, so from, the, from these three verses, I would probably say canned and tinned and preserved and frozen, everything is then uh, becomes tamasic then. Yes, you can definitely say that. Um, and it's, you know, the problem is that in our modern society, we're under so much pressure. And how many times have I gone through a work day and I literally will have 10 or 15 minutes to, to prepare and eat my lunch? You really need about 20 to 25 minutes just to cook something. And you can, with practice, you can get your cooking time down to about 20 minutes for any meal. You just have to have the right things lined up, and you, but you need to have a kitchen. And that's often simply not possible. So we fall back to microwaving something that's, you know. Which is the worst. So microwaving is like uh, uh, giving radiation to the prana or the chi of the food. I just want to mention, you know, if, you, if we take a food and we prepare it, let's say it's a very simple tortilla and we, um, and we offer it to the divine, then it remains fresh longer. It will not turn tamasic. Yes, this is true. But um, I also want to say something vis-a-vis -vis, um, the packaging and, and sterilization. Uh, I believe um, somewhat differently. I don't believe that microwaving is per se harmful, but the things that have to be done for food to keep a long shelf life, you basically have to remove all the bacteria. And it's actually the, um, the bioactive component of fresh food is part of what's beneficial, you know. Um, and studies have shown that the biodiversity of our gut bacteria is a very important part of the health of our immune system. And that is actually supported by the idea of harvesting freshly and cooking freshly and um, because cooking doesn't destroy all those bacteria, but it's the food that is overly sterilized that is harmful. Beautiful. So uh, in conclusion, there are um, three types of food that uh, people are attracted to. Foods in the mode of sattva, which are lacto-vegetarian, and mood, uh, foods in the mode of passion that are excessively sour or pungent or uh, so on or you know hot and spicy too much hot and spicy and then there is uh, people who are attracted to tam tamasic people or if you are in the mode of tamas temporarily you might be attracted to things that are frozen can uh, can tinned uh, being prepared and you know uh, lying in the fridge freezer for for months things like that so that's it that concludes our uh, chapter 17 of bhagavad gita talks thank you atul 
Thank you. Namaste. This is our second podcast from Narayana Ayurveda. Namaste. And I'm talking to Pandit Atul Krishna, who is the teacher for philosophy and Sanskrit and uh, Ayurvedic nutrition. So welcome, Pandit Atul. Thank you. Welcome and namaste to you. So what I wanted to talk about was I wanted to talk about the text Bhagavad Gita and its connection with yoga. How is Bhagavad Gita a text for yoga? Well, that's a great question. Bhagavad Gita is considered to be one of the primary texts for anyone who wants to understand the yoga system. People sometimes used to misunderstand yoga as referring to the exercises of doing asana and sometimes a little bit of pranayam. But actually yoga is very involved and there are many different systems of yoga. And Bhagavad Gita gives an overview of these. It gives an overview of Ashtanga Yoga, uh, Jnana Yoga, Buddha Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, and others. Sannyas Yoga also. Well, that's my second question. There's all these yogas out there. Um, so you're saying the yoga is not asana, and the yoga that is mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita has nothing to do with asana. It is something to do with the mind. Well, there are. <clears throat> it's a very good question because asana is part of yoga. Ashtanga means the eight parts, and the actually the first two parts of Ashtanga Yoga are yama and niyama. Yama means to follow some rules, some do's, and niyama means to follow some restrictions, some don'ts. For example, one should be clean. Um, one should refrain from unnecessary indulgence in sex, brahmacharya. One should refrain from stealing. One should refrain from dishonesty and harsh speech and blame and criticism of others. So these are yama and niyama. And then comes asana and then pranayama because asana is meant to help with pranayama. And then there's pratyahar, or withdrawal from the sense objects. And there is dharana, or being fixed, attaining a fixed or steady state. And then dhyana, actual meditation takes place. And the culmination of the meditative state is samadhi, when one has achieved a full state of deep, and transcendent absorption. So my next question is, who is a yogi? Because people go around talking that I'm a yogi. What really is a yogi? It's not someone who's practicing uh, three hours of yoga practice a day with lots of exercise, is it? No. If someone is doing the physical exercises of yoga, that is going to be beneficial. And that has clear beneficial physical and mental benefits for anyone who does it that has been clearly established. But really, according to Bhagavad Gita, a yogi is one who is using the yoga process as a means to achieve the goal of union. Because yoga comes from the Sanskrit verbal root yuj, to unify, to unite. It's the process of union with the divine and coming in contact 
with greater spiritual reality and connecting. That is really what the essence of yoga is. And the different yoga paths, they simply give different alternative methods that one may follow. For example, bhakti yoga is the yoga of loving union. I want to be united with the divine in a relationship of love, of loving exchange, giving of myself with love. And that is just to give one example. So when a person takes up yoga or they want to be a yogi, where do they start in Bhagavad Gita? What do they do? What chapter? It's, it's a little bit complicated. That's right, it is. Well, so the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita is always the best place to start. The first chapter is really just kind of setting the stage for a dialogue. And it's a dialogue that takes place between Arjun and Sri Krishna. And in the second chapter, the second chapter is titled, um, in some commentaries, it is titled uh, Sankhya Yoga. It is following the process of Sankhya or enumeration to understand the truth. What are the different categories of things? And one of the most important things to understand is what is Atma Tattva. And this is described in the second chapter. So, the step one, the A of the ABC in Bhagavad Gita, you have to start with chapter two. And from there, what process of yoga do you follow? Well, understanding this, we go to chapter four in Jnana Yoga, Sri Krishna says that tad vidhi pranipatena pariprashnena sevaya upadekshanti te jnanam jnaninas tattvadarshanaha. You have to find someone who is realized, someone who is a bona fide teacher or guru who is tattvadarshi, who has vision of the truth. That's the person that we should approach and try to learn from them. Um, and it is not about making up a new idea to do something new, but it's really about understanding a path that is going to take us somewhere we've never been and we may never have imagined before but we want to set out you know my guru once told me if you're going on a journey of a thousand miles should you know your destination first well yes you should you might consult a map or you might ask a realized soul, a guru, someone who has seen that higher plane of existence in union with the divine. So let's say somebody wants to do yoga seriously. They are going to a yoga class. Maybe they have now turned vegetarian. They're following the, the yamas or some niyamas, whatever they can. And uh, their yoga teacher is really nice. How do they what do they do? They first thing first, you said Atma Tattva. So first thing they do is they realize that they're not this body. Can you tell us some verses about Atma? Well, yes, now we're talking about the actual what is Atma Tattva in the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And Sri Krishna starts out by saying that uh, um, there is for the soul, the Atma, 
there is no birth or death. These concepts of birth and death relate to the body. And we are not the body. This is a very important, and, and for some people it's a very shocking revelation, the idea that who I am is actually Atma. And Atma is a spark of spiritual energy. Uh, you cannot cut the Atma into pieces. You cannot harm it with weapons. It cannot be moistened by water or dried by the wind. These are all properties of the Atma. The Atma is never born. The Atma is eternal. It has always been. There is not a time when it was created. So Atma is basically the soul. And when a yogi is uh, sitting down, and there are verses in Bhagavad Gita that talks about, you know, a yogi is meditating within self, and the self that they're meditating on is Atma? Yes, that is um, partly true because um, in the Bhagavad Gita it is described that the Atma resides along with Paramatma. So there is a difference between the individual Atma who is minute in quantity and the Paramatma who is a representative of the greater whole. And meditation is actually on the Paramatma. And it is described that the Paramatma, this is from the Upanishads, Dwasuparna Sayujasakaya. They are like two birds sitting on the same branch of a tree. They are right together. So someone who... Who are the two birds? The one is Atma. One is Atma and the other is Paramatma. So Paramatma is the unlimited divine in a minute form residing within every atom of creation and within the hearts of all beings. So Atma and Paramatma, which is the soul and the super soul, which is part of the divine, are residing in all entities' heart, even if it's an ant. Yes, every entity, even a bacterium. Uh, within a bacterium, there is the Atma. And Paramatma is... What about a virus? Well, viruses are an interesting question because they are technically not living things. It's just um, a snippet of RNA enclosed in a protein capsid shell, and they bind to a host. So they could be said to have some properties of living things or properties of non-living things. Um, you know, the jury is out on that, but generally it doesn't seem that a virus would have atma although it can have an effect on the uh, body of a living being. So people who do yoga or call themselves yogi or looking at the process of yoga, in this, in this time of quarantine, what can you do? What can you take away from Gita to make your life a little better? Well, I would say first and foremost, this concept that you are not this body, um, you are the Atma, and actually your source of bliss can entirely be found within. We are not dependent on our creature comforts. The other thing that the, the Gita tells us is that the mind can be our greatest friend or it can be our greatest enemy. You know, look at when people are protesting and they're getting all upset because they can't go to Applebee's. That's the mind being the enemy because they are focused on the negative. I can't do this and I can't do that. 
and I can't live without going out and being in a restaurant or something like that. Or they're all going out in hordes and beaches without any um, mask and so on. So it's very hard to stay at home. So do you think the process of meditation is going to help all of us? Absolutely. There is a verse in the um, Upanishads that says, Ramante yogi no nante satyananda chadatmani iti rama parenasau param brahmabhidiyate. The divine is called by the two syllables Rama because yogis, and this gets back to your question about who is a yogi, yogis find unlimited bliss in the Supreme who is called Rama uh, by many names, but Rama is one of them. And this is the Paribhasha or definition of the name Rama. That person in whom yogis find unlimited pleasure and bliss. We are carrying around with us the potential to realize unlimited bliss without end. Think about anything that we think of in this world as pleasurable. Everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And there's always some frustration mixed in as well. There is no unadulterated pleasure or real bliss in worldly things. But if we follow the process of yoga, even a little bit, Sri Krishna says, Neha bhikramanasho sti pratyavayo nivedite svalpam apyasya dharmasya trayate mahatobhaya. Even if you make a little bit of progress on the path of yoga, that progress will not be lost. Even if you die and you take birth again, your progress in, in yoga will be maintained and you will be able to resume where you left off. Whereas this is not so true. So here's a question for you. What yoga are we talking about? This, the bhakti yoga. So if we die in whatever yoga process uh, that we had done in this life, next life, we'll continue that. Or is it the ashtanga yoga? Which yoga are we talking about? Well, it is generally true of anyone on the path of yoga, but it is especially true on the path of bhakti yoga. Bhakti yoga is also sometimes called the yoga of grace because it is seeking union and grace and the showering of blessings from the divine. Um, and, and this is particularly a uh, recommended path for the serious spiritual adherent, someone who wants to get out of the whole existence, worldly existence, and who wants to be united in loving relationship with the divine. All right, so one more question. In Ayurveda, the, one of the aim and objective is life, or the four Purusharthas, which is dharma, uh, duty, artha, uh, acquiring wealth by um, ethical means, uh, kama, lust or desire, and uh, moksha, which is liberation from the material body eventually going in higher planets or uh, heaven, as some people call it. And in yoga, it is samadhi. What is the difference between moksha and samadhi? Well, that is a very good question. Moksha is also called apavarga. In Sanskrit, we have the syllables um, pa, pa, ba, ba, and ma. This is called pavarga, and it is symbolic of um, four, five types of conditions that exist in this world, um, which are to, um, to suffer uh, working hard so that we foam at the mouth, 
um, to have be disturbed, to have fear, to have death, and um, <clears throat> other types of suffering as well. And moksha means getting out of that cycle of repeated birth and death and suffering. And samadhi is something that can be attained in this life and the conditions that define the material world are present but the yogi who is in the stage of samadhi is not affected. Now there is the stage of moksha is also described as uh, Jivan Mukti. Jivan Mukti means that even within this life, even within the life in this material world, one is factually liberated by dint of being absorbed in a higher truth, in a higher state. But moksha really technically is referring to the state of complete cessation, getting completely out of this world, because as Sri Krishna also describes in the Gita, there is another reality, which is completely beyond this, in which everything is self-luminous and there is no darkness, there is no uh, birth, death, disease, and old age. There is no hatred and ignorance and envy and all of the other negative properties that we find in this world. And attaining that state is really what is moksha. Well, that was wonderful. We're going to come back and talk about different chapters from Bhagavad Gita. Keep on listening to our podcast. Namaste.